0: guys welcome to the revive stronger podcast it's me as always steve hall and today i am joined by mike Isratel again i was just saying to mike how it felt like quite a long time ago since we last spoke and we were speaking about tips for training kind of during lockdown and here we are again still kind of (laughs) the light at the end of the tunnel is almost there Um, and mike was just telling me how yeah you're due to be moving to las vegas where things are open so Um, have you, is there any names of gyms you've already looked at and
1: scoped out? Um, I think it's city athletic club or or Las Vegas, I forget which one city athletic club, I believe is one with like just a ton of different machines and just a really good atmosphere, uh, for hard training. And there's a couple of other gyms in Vegas that we're going to be checking out. Some, there's some gyms in Vegas that are really, really hardcore powerlifting gyms, But for Jared and I, for hypertrophy training, some of that stuff's really good. Some of it's like, ah, we sort of wish they had more equipment. Um, But uh, we'll see. We'll see. The Vegas gym scene is actually really, really incredible. So we're super excited. I can't wait to be using machines and a lot of other stuff again.
0: And I guess you, are you a gambling man, Mike? I I feel like I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not going to make a judgment call here. What's your best guess? (laughs) I feel like in some way, I take you for being one of the most rational people ever. And so for me, gambling doesn't make a lot of sense because the the table always wins, right? That's kind of how it goes. But in some ways... you don't learn without gambling some things in life. Sure. So I don't sure. know. Sometimes you might be tempted to just be like, fuck it. Right. Well, so just, I don't know how to count down. cards.
1: I'm not any good at any games <laughs> in which skill matters in the casino. So I, I, if memory serves, I've never actually gambled. I've been in uh, several casinos, um, mostly for the all-you-can-eat buffets. So to me, that's a gamble that pays off every single time, right? You pay money and you get a really great meal. Uh, so no, I don't. I don't gamble. So most of Vegas is uh, lost on me as far as casinos and gambling. But I actually heard that they're they're opening up the casinos like soon or like now or Oh wow! So uh, I thought that wouldn't happen for months, and I thought Vegas economy was going to be super devastated and everything. But I guess not. You know, the thing with the coronavirus is like there was this time. Before the peak cases, like in March and part of April, where it was like super like, this is the new normal, things are crazy. And then cases peaked and then started to drop and people were like, okay, but second wave and if we don't stay quarantined, it's going to go crazy, which are all very reasonable thoughts at the time. And then there's like multiple reviews of literature and multiple revisions that uh, tried to estimate for the first time infection fatality rates, which is different than case fatality rates. It's like for everyone who gets infected, not just shows up to seek treatment, what is the probability that they're going to die? And the infection fatality rates have been steadily trending down with every single update of every analysis to the point now where, for example, in the United States, on average, the Centers for Disease Control has estimated... Uh, if you integrate the asymptomatic case rate, the infection fatality rate is something like 0.2 to 0.4 percent, and uh, 0.2 is right on the upper cusp of the flu, right? And like you don't shut down an entire economy, or shut down as a poor term, reduce heavily the economy for uh, or people's personal lives and restrictions for the flu. I mean, that's just crazy, right? So, um So, what ends up happening is like, you know, if it's really the case of 0.2 to 0.4, and there's some other estimates and there's some other countries and regions that have higher, mostly it's because of the number of people in uh, older care homes and the number of old people and things like that, and some kind of social structure arrangements, like the density of the population, et cetera. But, um, you know, so there's some on the higher end, but it's nothing catastrophic. And it seems like for most people in most states of the United States, certainly, and actually the United Kingdom as well, um, it's just really getting incrementally more clear that while the quarantine was absolutely the right thing to do when we didn't know a whole lot, especially for countries and regions that don't have, um, aren't close to very to very few cases, like aren't close to zero, because then keeping the quarantine and just getting rid of all cases is actually a really good idea. Mm. Um, but for countries like the United, K, United Kingdom and the United States, which are like, you know, in the fucking millions of cases, like there's, you're not going to be able to quarantine You'd have to quarantine for an inordinately long amount of time to get rid of all the cases. It's now seeming to be the case that, like, it's probably time to start, you know, t- like testing and tracing and tracking mm-hmm. people who are sick and trying to minimize that, but also freeing up the economy because, you know, it's it's very easy to tell someone that we, this, this virus seems like a very, very terrible thing. And it seems like it's going to cause tons of devastation. And it's a good idea to lock down. Most people are, like, yeah, this makes sense, which is why the lockdowns are good at first. When you when you, somebody asks you like, isn't this just a really bad flu season? And you're tempted to say like, yeah, you know, some of the analyses that aren't too far out actually say that that's what it is. And then they ask you, they're like, that's really the case? Like, so we're locking down for that? And you it's tough to say yes. You know, it's tough to say yeah. yes in a very straightforward way. So, so I think that's where, where we are now with the whole situation.
0: I think this is really useful because I think. A lot of people, I mean, I've seen, I think even maybe Jared asked, but I know like Brad Schoenfeld asked a while ago, are people going to be going back to gyms when they yeah. open? And like most people who train in gyms aren't in that extreme risk category. They are healthy, fit, yeah, like non-obese people. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of the listeners, especially are probably in that category. So it's nice. Maybe some of them weren't really sure. They'd seen a lot of mixed information. So it's nice to kind of hear that, yeah, now them kind of the real information is starting to come through yeah. it's showing to be not something to be worried about yeah as much it's as funny enough the,
1: just the age distribution and the comorbidity distribution of covid19 seems to be more extreme than that of the flu so like children die of the flu but so far perhaps zero and maybe one child have died of it the entire world which is saying something as to its rarity yeah i, I would expect more just by chance but um so uh there's a huge difference in that polarity, basically so I haven't looked at the data in just a little bit, but last I checked, the uh, risk of COVID-19 to folks that are sort of under age 55 and healthy may be, if not comparable to the flu, actually a little bit lower uh, as far as death, which is like, I mean, why the hell aren't we in gyms anymore? Like that's still a tough question to answer, right? And people say, well, you know, you're going to get everyone else sick. Well, you know, if folks are at higher risk, doesn't maybe make sense that they should be helped with isolation protocols for themselves, you know, versus isolating everyone, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of, in most cases, we don't do something to the entire population uh, when it only affects a, a handful of people. That's actually a very poor use of resources. Usually you can just use a fraction of the resources and help those people even more. Like all of the economic downside that we see with not letting healthy young people work and go to gyms and et cetera, we could take like a tenth of that money Uh, let them go back to work, generate that money, take a tenth of that money and literally have older folks or people who have immune compromised conditions eligible for a free meal, food delivery and wellness check service with proper disease protocols. So now we're helping all the folks that have to be quarantined until the coronavirus vaccine comes out in a huge way, but we're doing it without a huge expense to the economy versus like having them not be having them be among the people that are suffering from lockdown but among you know tons and tons of other people that never sort of need to be. And there's there's been a few um, uh, studies out now um, and pretty much unanimously say that school closures uh, always were a bad idea. Uh, I would argue that, yeah, 2020 hindsight, they were a bad idea, but up front we didn't know who was dying yeah. and school closures are a real good idea because like sending children to school to die is kind of fucked up. Uh, but um, school closures seem to be just a really, really terrible idea on the net balance of almost every perspective that you can take So it's one of those situations like, we're keeping kids out of school for what? And it's kind of like just starting to be very unclear. And and people don't really have anything sort of good to say about, well, um, I guess, you know, and better safe than sorry is a fine way to do things Mm. until you know. And then you don't have to be safe or sorry. You could be a much better combination of both very targeted.
0: I know some people, I I know a few people personally, not many, but. I imagine there's quite a few people, at least in the UK, I am not exactly how it worked across in the US, who were furloughed and they're like earning 80% of their income sure. just getting a tan because the weather's been really good. So they're like living their best life. So. Yes, totally. <laughs>
1: it's just unfortunately you would have to pay for that later with yeah, either I higher know. tax rates or reduced economic activity. So when you're, you're, when you're 2025, it's not exactly the year yeah. you wanted it to be. That's because you didn't do shit back in 2020. You know, like uh, there's no free lunch no uh, unfortunately if there was that would be sweet but...
0: and then i just wanted to update the guys on i know we just spoke um you're sitting pretty lean like definitely low like teen body fat like 10 percent or so yeah and you're kind of at the moment are you in maintenance or how are things going for you yeah now? i'm
1: essentially in maintenance like uh, it's, it's really difficult because so people will say like you know are you in maintenance or a slight surplus Sort of the goal is like try to get a slight surplus, because it's profoundly difficult to measure whether or not you're in a maintenance or slight surplus, which is why I think you and I are both fans of like a, uh, what we would call like a meaningful surplus where you know it's a surplus and you're definitely gaining weight. But I'm, I'm in that range where I don't want to gain too much weight. I essentially want a diet break, but to put on a little bit of muscle for this, these uh, this five weeks that I'm currently in. And then I'll have two weeks of active rest. Um, and then I begin what looks to be something like 17 weeks of hypercaloric dieting and starting the 17 weeks when I have veins across my abs and obliques is like, I'm excited, Steve. I, I gotta, I'm got going to give this everything and see how it plays out. Jared Feather will be coaching me as well as Broderick and uh, it's, um, it's just a matter of getting into that deficit that's sustainable day to day and just fucking sitting there. Just doing the steps that I have to do each day. I've got a step monitor, and um, doing the lift the workouts. But the workouts are never a problem, right? Those yeah. get done either way. Doing the training, doing the steps, getting the sleep, eating the food. That's it. And I think that with the plan I have set in place, um, the deficit is going to be very meaningful, but at the same time, not insane. But uh, it's going to be weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and I. I gotta say, I gotta say, the laws of thermodynamics are real. I have to get super lean. It just has to happen as long as I stay healthy. I think, uh, I'm, you know, excited about some really, really cool stuff. I'm, I'll say this on a personal note. Um, I'm tired of being lean. I've been lean before. I'm pretty lean now. I don't want to be lean anymore. I want to be disturbing. The, the ghost of Marvin physique. Uh, is haunting me and I'm, I don't know if I'll ever get that lean but you know what I mean like the standard bearer of the leanest human that's ever been like I want freaky I want I don't want to train in a gym and people think wow that guy's really jacked and lean I want to pull my shirt off in a gym and people are, what the fuck happened to that guy what is that like John Meadows two weeks out kind of like yeah. just dumb shit so like that's super super cool I've never tried to get that lean I've been mostly just staying lean putting on size getting lean putting on size and it's worked i've fucking a ton of size uh and now it's time to to really really sharpen up so that's it
0: it's funny hearing you say that cuz now my i want to get maybe a little bit leaner than i have before i think i've got reasonably lean but i want the size to get down now i don't sure. want to look like yeah you're you're shredded but i mean bro <laughs> like there's a lot right. of skeleton there <laughs> totally totally well with your
1: arms i wouldn't say skeleton but yeah there's there's definitely that. And I didn't ever want to be in that position. So I used yeah. my most of my career so far to get big and I, I succeeded. So now it's time to get super lean. And I'm, I'm really, really excited about that.
0: I like the something I, ended, I was uh, in a similar position where you are now where I'd finished like a, a good kind of initial diet before a proper contest prep diet Mm -hmm. and i also was using a period of time of like ramping calories up but like kind of maintenance but also just rebuilding a maintenance in a many in a way and i found yeah that it's that period of time where you can build up it wasn't until maybe i don't know if it's probably similar for you maybe four weeks in or three weeks in where i was like now i feel like pretty okay but for the first few weeks i was still feeling elements of diet fatigue there I don't know if you had that or I know the first phase of dieting for you was pretty smooth.
1: First phase was very smooth. I barely felt any dieting fatigue during that phase. I did in the middle of it because we did some stuff with special sports supplements that was like in retrospect, stupid, not dangerous, just like pushing too hard. Um, I dropped my calories like crazy. Cardio was crazy. Um, and I was like, man, okay, this is dumb because at the end of that med cycle, Charlie and I looked at each other. We're like, we're basically half dead. And then we sort of took it easier the rest of the fat loss phase and still made great progress. Um, so, but towards the end of the phase, I wasn't really super diet fatigued a little bit. Um, I was having uh, dreams about tasty food every single morning for like two weeks straight, like every single morning. My blood sugar was super, super low, clearly, because my brain was like, wake up and eat cake. <laughs> um, but then uh, towards the end of that, uh, you know, so about two weeks after the diet ended, um, I'm like three weeks after the diet now. Um, honestly, I, I like right now. I'm very, very close to normal diet psychology. Ooh. If, if not there, um, like tonight, I have an option of taking a cheat meal. I, I probably won't because I, I'm, I'm probably going to be doing uh, some jujitsu tonight, just with friends, uh, off the off the record jujitsu. And um, after jujitsu, I just Steve, you ever have that where after you, right after you train hard because it's in the evening, you don't even feel like eating, like on anything but clean food. Do you ever have that? Mm. Like,
0: Just almost all, like you don't have an appetite particularly either.
1: Yep, you don't have an appetite and someone's like, do you want a juicy, like fatty burger? And you're like, no, not really. They're like, what about some fresh fruit and rice and chicken? You're like, that sounds great. It's weird. Like exercise almost potentiates clean eating for me. So tonight I probably won't even have a cheat meal. And then like, you know, because if you're really diet fatigued, like any opportunity to have a cheat meal, you take it. Uh, but like, you know, I'm just meh. So it's a good sign. It's a good sign. And I'll tell you what another good sign is. Uh, maybe folks can get something out of this. Um, in the how long do you rest before the next set uh discussions we've had, one of the indicators of central preparedness on a nervous system level is do you feel strong? And like you could do another hard set. You know that feeling you get deep inside like let's fuck this up, like I'm fucking ready. Versus like right after a set of squats, someone's like, do you feel strong? You're like, "Ah, no, like you feel like defeated, like psychologically super weak, right? Um, There's a similar thing that happens with dieting. I think that was very interesting. Um, After a diet, you can ask someone like, hey, do you want to get shredded in your heart of hearts? And they'll be like, no, I don't. I want to either not do anything or I just want to get huge or like big and puffy and giant right now, it's only been like two and a half, three weeks after the last diet, I want to get just completely insane shredded. I want it at a deep level. That kind of desire when it wells up enough can take you through a really hard diet. So all it needs to take you to technically is the point where you're seeing new stuff you've never seen before in your physique, which to me is the absolute biggest fuel for just rocking a fucking diet, like halfway through the diet, you're like, oh, this sucks. And you start seeing stuff you've never seen in your physique. And you're like, oh, my God, and you just can't wait. Like then it's the temptation to do even more calories and drop even, uh, sorry, drop even more calories and do even more cardio, which is a stupid idea. Don't, but at least it's like, it's like zero motivation problems, because it's like, it's unwrapping a presence at that point, like almost literally, you're like, whoa, here we go. Like kids don't stop wrapping presence when they see something shiny they go faster right so all the diet has to do is get you to that point and then holy crap it's a big deal
0: yeah and i guess the great thing is you've not like taken it to well you know you did you were you tried to not tried you were kind of competing last year as well weren't you not i can remember distinctly our discussion where you had the the tan on and
1: yeah, yeah. i got i got unfortunately got super sick right before mm. the competition Um, And I was kind of rushing into that competition anyway, so I wasn't super a big fan of that. Um, Charlie and I had a competition planned that would have been for two weeks from now um, uh, if I had kept dieting. And I would have been in really great competitive shape, but coronavirus canceled the living shit out of that one. Um, and it was, I don't know if it was a blessing in disguise, but like now I have all the time in the world to get yeah. super lean and I'm really excited. Like the diet is so long that like, there's no like, Ooh, I got to bake. I hope I get lean by this date. Like I'll get lean. It's just a matter of like, it's honestly like how long is the reverse diet going to be? I think at this point, because it's, Jared's plan is to get me super, super lean and then have me maybe eat a little bit more, a little bit more under control to see how I look, Pull carbs, push carbs, this and that, manipulate fluids. Um, so I think because we have time to do that, like I'm really excited because many of my other preps that I've done, stupidly, was uh, just barely enough time to get barely lean and then boom, it's prep, like competition yeah. week. And um, this time I I don't think it's going to be like that. So I'm really excited.
0: Yeah, especially... Uh, Not many people have the time to be able to use the reverse diet into a show, but if you can get that time, like I've had it, and I reckon there's competitors listening who have got shredded, then they've done a start moving food up, even if they're even going quite assertively, and they just start filling out, filling out, filling out, and they look incredible. It's like, oh, yeah, you could have used that maybe less assertively into shows that were later. Um, So, no, that's really cool. Out of interest, Mike, are you... There, is there anything else? I guess it's uh, Jared that I should be asking, but I don't know if you have any other thoughts on any differences you're doing in this kind of period of time where you're getting really lean, whether or not kind of, I know there was some recent research out of Bill Campbell's lab on potentially some benefits of back-to-back days of refeeding. I know previously refeeds haven't really been something that you're big in favor of, but I don't know if that's anything,
1: I guess, um, you think about trying this time around. Definitely not. Uh, when I get super lean, then I'll play with refeeds. Um, I'm actually going to do the opposite of take Roderick's advice, uh, Jared's too, of just establishing a solid deficit. But the diet, if it goes well, is going to have only essentially two components. Component one is for one mesocycle. It's just at a pretty decent deficit, but nothing crazy. Just get into like the shape I was in at the end of this last diet, uh, and because fat comes off super easy at the beginning. You don't have to go hard. Mm-hmm. And then step two, which will probably last two mesocycles, is going to be like a really pretty gnarly but sustainable deficit, and it's going to be literally the same diet down to almost the same foods every day. Um, I honestly think uh, for folks that don't, for folks for whom it's difficult to get lean, I think one of the best approaches is to settle into a plan you can execute. And just let the time take place. I've heard from many prep coaches. I've read about many prep coaches. I've talked to many prep coaches that say nothing replaces time for dieting. Yeah. Um, Shelby Starnes, uh, amazing prep coach, actually, uh, has said, like, you know, getting lean is, he, he literally believes, I'm not sure if I exactly agree, but I think I 95% agree. He thinks everyone can get ridiculous stage lean. It's just a matter of how long you diet for and do you balloon back up between diets. Like, I think he's probably right. So for me, the biggest change is going to be dieting in this two-phase manner, and each phase is nice and long. At the end of it, you know, it's gonna be roughly 30 weeks of total dieting. God damn it, something's gotta happen at that point.
0: Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership side. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. See you there. Do you think, I am I know uh, we have questions, but I'm, I think people enjoy our chats and I'm just interested sure, to sure. talk you through this because I'm not sure it happens for you often on podcasts uh, if you're okay to do it. But uh, I wonder, obviously, there is a certain, obviously with uh, training with higher volumes when you're trying, like in, during a fat loss phase, I guess there'd be that element of, you could maybe keep dieting but like the training is now becoming a bit unsustainable and i guess the risk of muscle loss is greater as you diet for longer so i don't know if that's something to consider as like people might hear oh you can just like don't go for infinite preps i know jared's spoken about like how he's not a huge fan of like the really extended preps um and i guess yeah potentially when you're like I think you even came up with this analogy on a podcast with us was like, once you're below this kind of body fat setting range or wet, like this body fat, that's just kind of unsustainable for you. You're kind of on fire. And then like, you don't want to extend that period of time. Yeah, you don't want to long. roll away
1: from the fire two feet. You want to just get up and douse yourself with water. So I think that is for folks that would do a maintenance phase at like six or 7% body fat. And then do another diet down to like three or something. That is not a sustainable place to be doing a maintenance phase, and you will pay for that. I'm somewhere, depending on the measurement, between eight and eleven percent body fat. Um, it is funny because depending on where on me you look, it doesn't look like I'm that or it looks like I'm much leaner than that. Like if you look at my quads, there's veins covering every single part of everything, and you're like, you, that could be like six or seven, dude. And like people are like, I've been 6%. I never had legs that look like that. And then my back looks like it's at like 13% maybe. And, and then my chest has like prostrations and veins. Like, okay, back to 6%. So who knows, right? Um, But I think, you know, somewhere like in the eight to 10 range, that's a sustainable place to, to do a maintenance phase. But then once you get below, uh, you know, eight to 10 and start to go down, it should be be a compound without large breaks or time spent fiddling around in that range. So that's still true. Uh, and as far as like losing muscle and stuff, <clears throat> especially folks that are not using special sports supplements, that's definitely a concern. Parroting Shelby Starns, him and I had this discussion a long time ago. But he's like, I don't, I don't think naturals lose nearly as much muscle as they think they lose during contest prep. And having you know seen the results of a bunch of natural preps, Jared's a natural prep coach. Um, People just don't lose all that much muscle, and it's a muscle loss is really kind of tough. If you're training really hard with adequate volumes and you're not eating like a crazy low number of calories, and your physical activity doesn't drop through the floor, then muscle loss is like you, you might lose like two kilos of muscle or something like that. First of all, you regain it in like three weeks after you stop dieting, but also it's like to get that extra bit of crazy leanness, it's probably worth it. The way I think of it is, I'm no expert on contests, and eventually maybe I will be after I do have a whole bunch of them, but. I think bodybuilding contests, so generally, the judging works in a sequential manner. And I think people think it works um, in a in a parallel manner, but I don't think it does. I think it's sequential, um, or, 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 or parallel versus serial. So parallel process is something that this occurs multiple things occur at the same time. A serial process is when there's one thing gets done and then another and then another. So I think bodybuilding contest judging is a bit more serial than people think, which, which is to say the following. I think if you're not really, really lean, they just don't look at you much anymore. And it doesn't matter how big you are or how how artistic your physique looks. The first round of judging, what draws judges' eyes is lean. The guys turn around, they do their glutes, lower back, and hamstrings. They go, okay, that guy's top three, top three, top three, move him in. And between those guys, the next thing that counts is muscularity, like how jacked are you? And then after that, let's say you've got two guys roughly the same muscularity, roughly the same leanness, which is to say the best in that category. Then they go, okay, who's the guy with the best aesthetics? Right? Like, that's not exactly how it happens, but it seems like it happens more like that. So, when people be like, you know, should I sacrifice a little bit of size for that extra crispy leanness? Yes, yes, because if you have that extra crispy leanness, it gets you a look for sure. But if you don't have it, yeah, you might look in your bathroom like on the net balance better, you might look better in pictures, but the way bodybuilding judging works, super, super conditioning gets you an automatic look. And unless you shit away five or 10 pounds of muscle, it's not going to change how your physique is shaped, but it'll get you in the door. Steve, do you think that's incorrect, correct, or some measure? What do you think? It's,
0: I think, very much correct to how judges do judge. It's very interesting to me right now, because um, within the UK scene, at least, the uh, one of the big kind of uh, federations has been talking about the judging and how they aren't kind of fully satisfied with how Mm. the judging is being done because too many people are going for that super dice look and sacrificing the muscular size and shape Uh. that bodybuilders are known for so it's interesting because yeah you're completely right from observational that's what gets you the win whereas they're saying Mm. one thing and maybe something else is actually happening in practice
1: Do you remember a bodybuilder by the name of Melvin Anthony from about 10 years back? Don't. Marvelous Melvin Anthony, folks watching this can look him up. He had like pretty close to flex wheeler type genetics. He had a 27 inch waist and he was like 235 on stage. It was just pure nonsense. Yeah, like the ultimate black eye genetics, right? And He was just like out of this world. He had arms, he had delts, everything flowed. He was the best poser numerous times. He never, ever got strided glutes, and the, the rest of him was as lean as could be. He just couldn't do strided glutes. He just His glutes just wouldn't come in, and he never placed nearly as high as you would be able to. Like, if you saw him from the front, like front relaxed, you'd be like, that guy just won every show. And Then he would turn around. You'd be like, that guy looks great. And You look at his glutes, and you're like, mm. but if you weren't into glutes, you'd be like, this guy's still winning. His back's incredible. It's super shredded. His hamstrings are great, but it was the glutes. And he never placed nearly as high as you would think he would. And he was, you know, he's a very respectful guy, but he would occasionally get vocal. Understandably, he was like, "Look, I mean, is this a glute contest? Because if it is, fine. I, I'm not complaining about my placing. It's just a little bit confusing when I do everything the judges say, short of these fucking glutes." He's like, "Is this a glute contest?" And he would get beat by guys who like had distended growth hormone guts or insulin guts or whatever and like just more, like look like they were assembled by like you know somebody like me like somebody assembled assembled by accident and random body parts <laughs> here and there and uh they would beat him because they had sharp glutes and he would be yeah. like are you fucking serious and he wouldn't say much of that but his fans including myself would be like at the very least there's some nuance there that i think maybe we're missing but then a contrary argument could be look you know stride glutes means you really fucking suffered so it's more of like who earned it and second of all you know, if we don't value super conditioning, we're turning into a more of a genetics contest. Uh, like, guys, you have to be careful in bodybuilding how how much you value, like, the symmetry and the flow, because most of that is genetic, right? Like, so it's just the guy that's got the talent's going to win. However, I will say I'm very much against the social justice view of sports, of that there's anything, like, deserving to win or fairness. You have a rule set. The rule sets designed to get you what you want to see as a fan because the sport, sports are purely for fans. There's no other fucking reason to do sports. So otherwise you would just do the shit at home. Uh, and what is it the fans want to see? Is it, I think fundamentally the fans want to see, you know, somebody who looks the best and however way you pick that, there's nuance there. But I, I definitely don't want people to be like, well, I don't care about symmetry at all. I hear only about conditioning, like, yeah, this is not a conditioning contest, though. Mm. And fans will look at one guy and be like, hey, he's super lean, but this other guy looks great. I want to look like that guy. This is bodybuilding. Like, Flex Wheeler in his prime was bodybuilding. Like, and he also never got super striated glutes, but, like, nobody really gave a shit because they're like, this guy is built by gods. Like, fuck glutes. Who cares? And at the end of the day, I think that's what people want to see. But the the stri the leanness is also, I'll say another thing. Even with size, it's a little bit difficult to compare people because you kind of got to look all over. Let's say one guy is almost as big as the other. It's difficult to see who's bigger. it's one guy's like arms are bigger as one like legs. legs? Um, symmetry is tough to compare because like guys have different bodies sometimes, and you're like, I don't know. This one guy looks great in this way, but this other guy looks like a tank, and that's kind of cool. Conditioning is an easy out for judges because it's fucking super easy to put two yeah. guys close together, turn them around rear double by and be like that guy's leaner next you know it's almost objective i would say like phil heath when he wins the olympia is like the leanest guy and stage that's what people forget about phil heath like oh i don't know his distended gut he's like he's super fucking lean there's yeah. nobody on that stage leaner than him go ahead and argue that and it's like you know that's that's super objective to figure out who's leanest so i think Judges rely on the more objective stuff because they don't have to vex their brains much, which makes sense, right? Like, okay, like these guys are the leanest. And and, and the last thing I'll say is, if you pick the leanest guys to win your shows, you're never going to get much argument out of people, right? Uh, I have seen non the non-leanest guys win shows. Like I remember when Marcus Roll won a couple shows, and there was a couple guys in the show that were like super strided. But he weighed like 285 and they weighed like 215. And they would be like, and, and their fans would be like, really? This fat fuck wins the show? They're like, have you seen these two guys next to each other? It's bodybuilding, not body cutting. So, you know, if the leanest guy wins, those guys don't ever complain. But if the leanest guy doesn't win, they're like, what the fuck? And it's like, yeah, at the end, like you said, it is a balance of muscularity. And I think it's great that that UK federation that you're talking about is considering it because there's stuff to consider there. There's definitely not one right way to skin a cat.
0: Yeah. I think over time it became more and more straight glutes were like you have to it. have that to even step on stage. Yep. And some organizations seem to have slightly different preferences. But I think yep. it's really interesting actually, you said the kind of condition is quite objective, whereas the rest of it is fairly
1: subjective in many ways. Totally. Totally. Even muscularity. Because yeah. it's tough to judge who's really bigger. Um you can get a perception of it, but with leanness it's not really a perception. I mean you look for specific details. Like a five-year-old can probably tell you who's leaner like if you just teach him what to look for and you're like look at this guy's glutes they have many <laughs> edges be like yes okay, he's That's
0: it. awesome mike i'm gonna get us to dig into some questions uh, otherwise i'll just yeah keep digging into your brain about <laughs> these things that are just on my mind so anyway so uh, the first question is from andrew potacek and he asked oh, what are mike's thoughts and experiences with nutrition changes does he de- see different body changes when changing macros around, such as higher fats work well for one person, but higher carbs work for another person, or medium for another person? Um, that's,
1: yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. It's a good question. Uh, <laughs> not much is the first answer. Um, when you equate calories and protein, very little happens after that. Um, Some people do seem to benefit from more uh, carbs and less fat. Um, A lot of that, I think, is just down to preference and digestion. Uh, For example, Charlie, who I help with this program, uh, I think like many Asians, and this is literature supported, is incredibly carb tolerant. Like Charlie can eat an inordinate number of carbs and feel 100% fine. But if he eats any more than about 150 grams of fat per day, his digestion comes pretty much to a halt. Like, for example, he can eat an isocaloric meal, same meal, size, with a huge number of carbs and very low fats. Three hours later, he's like, ready to eat again. And they're like, okay, great. He eats his meal, it feels great. He eats same meal, calorie size, except it's tons of fats and not so so many carbs. Three hours later, he's like, I can't eat, I'm not hungry, and I feel like my food is still in the top of my stomach. And you try to feed him more food and he starts throwing up, and you're like, "Huh, okay. So I think there's that. And then there's just sheer preference. I think some people like to eat foods that are higher in fat. Uh, they can get them down easier on a mass gain. On a fat loss phase, they keep fuller for longer with higher fat foods. Um, and then that's a the thing. I think at a bioenergetic perspective, yeah, there may be some major differences between individuals but those differences, even if major, relatively are absolutely very small differences. So what I would say to answer the question best is start out someone with very reasonable recommendations right in the middle. And then if you have time with them as a client, if you're a long-term client, if it's yourself, if they're trying to get the competitive edge, experiment with several weeks at a time at the more extreme ends. So experiment with much higher fats and much lower carbs and see how they feel same calories, must keep the same calories. Otherwise, you have no idea what you're comparing. You could just be comparing calories. Because guys will say like, oh man, I feel like I have such energy, low energy in a low carb diet. And you're like, okay, have you ever done a low carb diet that was isocaloric? They're like, no. We're like, well, try to eat like a shitload of nuts, a shitload of cheese, a shitload of chicken and see how you feel. They're like, I actually feel quite good. You're like, see, like low carb diets do decrease energy expenditure during training and performance and pumps, but not by as much as people think because they equate low carbs to low calories. Um, So keep the the calories the same and go up to like relatively high fats, right? Go to like, start with, um, well, let's see, Point. start with uh, one gram of fat per kilo of body weight per day on a maintenance phase or a gain phase. So if you weigh 100 kilos, you would eat 100 grams of fat and then have that person for another month after, so do that for a month and just see how they feel. Ask them about digestion, training, and so on and so forth. Next mesocycle, try to get them to go to um, to 1.3, so 130 grams of fat in the case of 100 person. See how they feel, digestion, so on and so forth. And then the next month, try to get them to go to uh, 0.7, so 70 grams of fat per day, clearly more carbs, and see how they feel. If they just can't tell the difference, be like, which one of those did you like the best? And they'll tell you, and they'll be like, well, just stick to that one. Right. Um, and then if they didn't, uh, if they did feel a difference and they really highly preferred one, I would try that experiment at least one more time to make sure it wasn't a false positive for something else. And if they have the same sensations, let's say you take them up to 130 grams of fat, and they're like, oh, they're sluggish, their digestion sucks. You take them down to 70, and they're just like, Fuck a machine. And then they're like, oh, I think 70 is it. You're like, oh, okay, well, let's go back up to 100. You go back to, uh, up to 100 and they're like, oh, I feel pretty good still. Not as crazy as I did on 70. Um, uh, but I, although the foods are tastier and I like to eat that, and you take them to one, 130 again and they're like, Bleh! And you're like, okay. And you go back to 70 and they're like, ah. And you're like, I, clearly you are you seem to prefer a low-fat, high, high-carb. So that's great. And if it's the other way, it's the other way. But you know, it's funny, people, it's, we all want shortcuts. But a lot of times the way you have to do insight into individual differences in your body is with experimentation and not a day not a fucking week people will be like yeah i ate high carbs for a day i didn't like it like dude what the fuck are you talking about like that's insane uh you you got to give it as due diligence which is to me i think a massive cycle at a time
0: yeah very well said i think like you said there that the key thing a lot of people miss with the experimentation is they do like a single day a week and it needs to be because there's too many variables like what training week you in could that have been the thing that made it good or bad or whatever it might be so yeah 100%. awesome cool so the next question is from andrew white and he has asked this how is would you
1: andrews back-to-back See? it is
0: that's amazing <laughs> this uh, he has asked how would you structure an op- optimal glute development program for a male and secondly thoughts on burnout techniques for glutes and why they seem to be so popular among fitness influencers
1: Fitness influencers like to feel their glutes because it reinforces if their glutes are working and you can feel your glutes really well with burnout techniques. Burnout techniques also don't require you to lift very hard and heavy, which uh, people don't like to do. So they prefer the easier burnout things. So burnout techniques give people a simultaneous uh, mind-muscle connection and also simultaneously make them not have to load up super heavy weight. So it's more of the perceived good, less of a perceived bad. A uh, glute hypertrophy program would consist of a couple of things. I would probably train the glutes three to five times per week. we will just say four as an example. I would do uh, one day, two days of glutes are very heavy, and then two days of glutes much lighter, usually probably back-to-back. So, for example, Monday and Thursday would be heavy sumo uh, deadlifts and on one day, deficit, and heavy sumo squats on another. And then the second exercise that day would be some kind of heavy uh, glute bridge or one leg glute bridge, something for lower repetitions. And then Tuesday, Friday, potentially, uh, or Tuesday, Saturday, or something, would be higher rep glute work in, in which they would do, you know, uh, those burner stuff that we're talking about, including walking lunges, lots of pre exhaust for the glutes and things like that. And on all four of those days, the glutes would be the first thing they trained in the session, and or it would be the AM session if you do a double split. And you start at MEV, progress to MRV, make sure you're getting strong on the exercises over time, and that's probably how I would do glute training. So out of interest,
0: Mike, I think it's obviously uh, within – More so the the female fitness community, like growing the glutes was like obviously a big deal for them. And they've been doing the adductor, abductor machines a heck of a lot. Um, So firstly, I'd like to hear how valuable you think those are. But then a lot, it's become more popular, I think, within even male bodybuilders for, uh, I think more so the adduction um, to include isolating. Abduction? The adduction for the male, so like the inner thigh, um, uh-huh. that's been something I've seen coming within bodybuilding circles to be something that a lot of people yeah. are taking a sure. lot more seriously. So I don't think it's ever something you've talked about, but I know you, you don't personally program it for yourself. So uh,
1: so like uh, speaking for Jared and myself, we, we actually just don't relate at all to people who do targeted adductor work because with deep squats like presses and hack squats and lunges like we do, Actually, my limiting factor on quad training is currently and has been for a long time, adductor recovery. Um, my adductors get fucked up because I think gonna you squat deep, leg press deep, and hack squat deep, like almost no one does, your adductors get fucked in an unbelievable way. My adductors are fucking enormous um, compared to the rest of me, and my quads have trouble keep, catch, catching up, and I have really good quads. So um, I think it's one of those situations where, Adductors and proper training are like front delts in proper chest and tricep training. Like, what? Like, why the fuck would you ever train them alone? Like, maybe once a week or something, but like, you know, but that's just for Jared and I and and many of our folks that we work with. Some people may be doing full range of motion stuff and still their adductors are not as big as they want it. And their adductor MRVs may be very high, uh, much higher than their quads. And then at that point, you absolutely can't do more adductor work. So each muscle should be evaluated based on the same criteria as always. Um, are you currently growing and are you currently recovering with ease? If you're not growing but you're recovering with ease, you know the prescription is more volume and perhaps more exercises that are targeted specifically to that muscle. If you're barely recovering and you're growing fine, don't do anything. If you're barely recovering and not growing fine, consider doing less. <laughs> so... um that uh, that is the situation on adductors. So you know, before I would ever do isolated adductor work, I would make sure someone is doing the deep shit. And like the exercises just talked about, sumo deficit deadlifts will rip your fucking adductors off the bone. Like if you need extra adductor work after that, you are one in a hundred. Like right? which you may very well be, but it's unlikely. What I mostly see is bodybuilders doing adductor work, um, and then I see their quad work and glute work, and I'm like. You pussy motherfucker, like you learn how to squat deep, you won't have fucking need out of your work. But go ahead and do an extra machine, and that's like that's the thing that gets like folks like myself and Jared really, really impassioned. I will say is when people do like double the working out they need to because they're doing such a bad job at the first part. You know, like if you do the quality working out you're supposed to, well, wow, cover so many bases, you actually don't have to do that much working out. But if you half-ass the big part of your workouts then you end up having to do much more on the other end. there's no way to get away from the work. I would just do it more efficiently. If an exercise like deep squats and and deadlifts can zap your adductors and your quads at the same time, why the fuck would you do two exercises to do that? You know what I mean? So that's my view on that. Um, As far as abduction, I think abduction on the machine is a, a fine exercise. It's not... It does not generate very high tension through the glutes, does not recruit a crap load of glute motor units. Uh, it, uh, you know Other exercises like deficit deadlifts, deficit squats, uh, glute bridges and stuff like that do it better. But I think for higher reps, as a pre-exhaust and as just ex- uh, extra work for higher reps because the glutes can recover, I think it's a fine inclusion in a glute specialization program. I think if you're not specializing on your glutes, the STR, the stimulus to time ratio, how efficient that exercise is, is awful. It's one tiny part of your glutes that gets trained and it, you, there's an inordinate amount of time to spend doing it. You have to set up the machine, warm up, get off the machine. You could have just done a set of barbell walking lunges, uh, almost all that's done, and quads and adductors and part of your calves. So uh, I would say that if you're specializing in glutes and you find that glute abduction on the machine has a high SFR for you or a decent SFR, stimulus and fatigue ratio, then I think it's great to use and there's no reason why you shouldn't use it. But I think if like... You want meat and potatoes big at glute growth and your first thing is like machine abductor. Or like, I think you should do some deficit pulling and squatting, lunging and, and uh, have heavy hardcore glute bridges. And then if that doesn't grow your glutes, then uh, abduction probably won't either. <laughs> but maybe then it's time to try
0: it. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique And knowledge to the next level if you're interested check the description and sign up fantastic awesome cheers mike and so the next question is from rick lee and he has asked if metabolic adaptations occur during a cut beyond those resulting from simply being smaller such that the number of calories one was cutting on are now truly maintenance then will keeping calories at that level provide the benefits of eating at caloric caloric maintenance, and allow metabolic adaptations to subside?
1: Yes. Easiest answer I'll ever give. So like, let's say you weigh 240 pounds and you get on a diet that's calculated to be isocaloric at 200 pounds. You will asymptotically approach 200 pounds and probably a year or two later you'll get there because the diet goes like, which is why dieting below whatever you want is a good idea because it drags it down faster and then you can renorm. But if you truly do get to the point where... Your your diet was always isochloric for a 200 pounder or for you at 200 pounds. You go from 240 to 200. Once you get to 200, it won't, it'll feel like every week you're on that diet. As you get closer to 200, it'll feel less and less like a diet. Like you'll be pretty hungry when you reach 210. When you reach 205, you'll be pretty hungry. And when you reach 203, you'll be like, I don't know. Like, because remember, the rate weight loss slows down. So at that point, you're losing only like a quarter of a kilo a week. You are like, well, I think I, I was hungry a couple of weeks ago. I actually feel fine. Like my body, people say that. Uh, people who are very overfat and they will lose weight like that. They'll say, you know, at first I was hungry, but then my body actually got really used to it. Like, and that's the thing because you're just not a big deficit. And then six months later, someone will be like, "Oh man, like you're still eating your diet diet food." you be like, "Yeah, but it was a diet for me when I was 240. Right now, it's like more than enough food, and I feel totally great." So it's absolutely the case that you get all those metabolic um, sort of deadaptations or renorming. Uh, once you reach your weight. Uh, the thing is most people properly they're cutting calories are way below what would maintain them. Like during parts of my hypocaloric phases, I'll drop to like twenty seven hundred calories. I mean, I never get below two hundred and ten pounds during my fat loss diets, but twenty seven hundred calories just at my activity level is probably maintenance for some of the weighs like 160 or 180. So there's no way I'm going to get used to that unless I weigh 160 and 180. As if I died long enough, I absolutely would weigh that much and then I'd feel totally fine. So,
0: Cool. Awesome. It's kind of one of those ones where you feel like they've almost answered their own question um, because maintenance is maintenance. Totally. So but, it gets,
1: but it gets tricky, it's right? Because you bought, it's hypo- it was hypocaloric. and you're a lot of diet fatigue. Don't you need to ramp your food up? And the reality is this, um, your metabolism might... Uh, it, it really your your hunger signaling will be messed up for a little while, but then it'll go back to normal. So for when you reach 200 pounds for the first time, don't let the first couple of weeks freak you out, right? Because be like, okay, I'm technically at maintenance, but I'm still ravenous. That's okay. It starts to slowly heal itself. Um, the good thing about uh, proactive dieting is you can do better than that. You can set whatever you need to at the 190 mark. Zoom past 200 and then go to the 200 mark. It's more food and it really much more quickly heals the process. You can contract the whole thing, which is why people will say like, well, the best way to diet is just to eat whatever maintenance is for the weight you want to be at. Like, yeah, it's very straightforward. the simplest diet. But the problem is is that it takes a crazy amount of time. Uh, you could diet much faster and recover much faster if you simply did a little yeah. bit more aggressive at the front end and then reintroduce more food at the back. End. That's it. Um Yeah, yeah.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, next question is from Olga Carilio Cinaros. Great name. I've Uh, seen that name before on the internet. uh Tips for running resensitization mesocycle whilst not having very much weight at home.
1: Yeah, so don't do a mesocycle. Do two weeks and call it active rest. You get pretty much all the resensitization but because the training is so easy, uh, you don't you drop fatigue even faster. And then so for the first week do basically deload and for the second week basically don't train with weights. And after two weeks of that kind of easiness, you'll be able to go hard and, and super hypertrophic again. Um so I would advise against full on resensitization Mezzos, for those you need heavy weight. And if you don't have it, then active rest is a good approach. Good news, you know, save yourself probably two weeks. Um, so that's it. And is two weeks the maximum
0: active rest?
1: No, you could do three. Okay. Uh, that would be one of those things where if you asked me, like, what is a give me a compelling reason why two weeks isn't long enough? I would not have a compelling reason. Uh, so, two weeks I think is long enough for most people. But uh, if you get to two weeks and you're like, oh, I still need to heal up some injuries. I still don't want to train I'm super hard, then take another week. That's okay. People are really, really weird about taking rests. Um, and there's at least two groups of people I can come up with that are very, very good at taking rest and they're very, very good at sports. One is uh, Eastern Bloc athletes, uh, Eastern Europe, that whole um, situation. It actually includes Germany as well, which is not Eastern Bloc. But, um, you know, they like you see Russian power when they're not prepping for a contest and their lifts are 200 pounds off of what they usually are. They're like, what the fuck? And they're like, you talk to them, like, are you okay? Are you sick? And they're like, wow, yeah, I'm fine. It was just. They're like I feel great. I'm like, when's the last time you trained with weights? They're like a month ago. And you're like, what? But because their coaching tradition is centered on fifty years of of periodization, they know it comes back. Like their coaches have. It's you know, a lot of times people in the U.S. and the U.K. think that as soon as they take their foot off the pedal, that's it, fucking disaster, and they have evidence for it because as soon as they take the foot off the pedal. You know, like your intramuscular swelling goes down and you look like shit and you're like, fuck, 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 fuck. This is just the beginning of me losing everything forever. But it's really not. So, so that's, that's group number one. And group number two is competitive bodybuilders and I think Pro ranks who, for no reason other than the fact that they can't possibly take that many drugs year round, will take, gee, two to eight weeks off every year. And then, like, off, off, off of all their drugs, off of all of everything. There is a guy, um, who used to take second place in the 212s uh, all the time from Brazil a couple of years back? And I remember like following him on Instagram like two and a half years ago. And I was like, oh my God, uh, Eduardo uh, Correa, I think. Yeah, Eduardo Correa. And some people, folks can look him up. I mean, he was like top and top of the 212, like fucking diced, huge, like unreal, right? Second in the world to Flex Lewis for like three years straight. And I was like, oh my God, like Eduardo quit the sport because he was with his kid and his wife in Brazil and like he looked like he weighed like 180 and he looked like he's a guy who used to train hard but doesn't anymore. And I was like, oh my fuck. And then he's like, I'm doing a show in 16 weeks. And I was like, what? And then in 16 weeks, he came and essentially beat his best ever appearance. And I was like, ugh. Oh my God, he was never worried about it, right? Because he knows a shit yeah. all comes back and that works for natural and enhanced. So when people say like, you know, two weeks of active rest, right, but not three, I'm like, bro, well, you could take six and within eight weeks after that, you'll be your all time best and so fucking refreshed. You just bought yourself an extra two years of lifetime training. So definitely be on the side of, it's okay to take a long break. Um, me personally, psychologically, I have unbelievable Difficult time taking breaks like that because I'm an insane person. Yeah. But I will not defend my insanity as normative. I think it is problematic for me, and I don't think that I'm a good example of what you should do. I can always tell you what you should do, and then what I do. You know, uh, you know that's so, so. That's it. I think that the act of rests what we give us as general advice for all of sports is two to four weeks, but there's huge margins on either side of that. And I think in bodybuilding, if you take two weeks, great. If you take three, live it up. If you take four, have at it. Uh, you know, if, if you're taking, if you're natural and you're taking active rest of like two months, like I think you just don't like training. Yeah. Um, and if you're a drug user and you take two months of active rest, I think you also don't like training. And also, what the hell did you do to your body to need two months of active rest? As far as what did you take? Uh, but uh, you know, but most of the time, two two to four weeks is totally grand and and roll the dice how you like between them
0: a nice i've done it before where i've deloaded before a holiday and then i'm on holiday so it's perfect. kind of like that's oh i've got two weeks of almost uh what i was looking to get it do you have a quick guidelines for active rest of what that looks like
1: yeah it's super easy you do your normal deload that's week one and then you take another one to two weeks of You could come to the gym like twice and just literally fuck around. Like pretend you're new to a gym and you're like, oh, what are dumbbells? <laughs> you know, like five to 10 RIR, one to two sets per muscle group, the least systemically fatiguing exercises. So like do some like walking lunges with just your body weight, do a few push ups, do a few pull downs and leave. Um, or just don't go to the gym. Like uh, that's probably an even better idea because you're going to be so a re-addicted you're going to be like a heroin addict who had not had a shot in a while you are going to be in the gym like white on rice if you leave for a week so like what i'm doing uh, the plan is i take my deload the last week i'm into philadelphia and then my wife and i moved to las vegas though we're taking a whole week to move because the united states is fucking massive and also we're going to be swinging by to see family that whole week we're not training i'm just not training. Like, I'm going to be driving by a couple of gyms, and I'll just be like, hey, guys. Like, I might even go see some friends who own gyms, and I won't train at their gyms. I'll just fuck around. and Like, it's so funny, too, because I've been to gyms before. I wasn't training. People are like, Dr. Mike, are you going to train? And I'm like, nope. And they're always like, what? Fuck, why is he at the gym? (laughs) Uh, So no training at all. And then when I get to Vegas... Oh my god, I'm gonna have fucking Superman laser eyes for the gym like fuck. Because, you know, if I don't go to the gym for a week, I start turning into a very poorly adapted social person. So at that point, it's like I just can't wait, right? But if you never go to get away from the gym, you can see have you ever been there with your own psychology where you're like, you still say to yourself that you love the gym, but you honestly fucking hate it and you just want a day off forever.
0: Yeah, it yeah. definitely happens towards yeah. the end of some
1: mesocycles. <laughs> Totally. And and it's one of those things where if you take an occasional week off, two weeks off here and there from the gym once or twice a year, that tends to happen way less. And it tends to just reinvigorate the fire you have for the gym. So I think it's just a great idea. And there are no downsides, only upsides. Because people, everyone's paranoid about losing muscle. And it's just, that's just not how it works.
0: Yeah. I say, I have some regrets spending too much time trying to find and in gyms on holiday when I could just be enjoying the holiday and using it as an active rest.
1: That's one of those things, man, like on a really personal note, I kind of, I love traveling all over the world and training in their gyms. And so I actually do love training on holiday, but then again, like also kind of want to look full and vascular on holiday. And sometimes that gets in the way of having fun and just Mm. relaxing. And at the end of the day, like, I think that's why it's important to train super hard and have either good results in pictures or results in competition to where like you don't need to try to represent your best ever because you've already done it. Like yeah. you know, you know when when, uh, when when Phil Heath wins the Olympia. And, you know, two two months later, someone sees him on a cruise with his wife and they're like, oh, we're not exactly looking like Mr. Olympia. He'd be like, oh, that's nice. Do you want to borrow my sandout trophy, motherfucker? <laughs> like, I trust me, I am. It, 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 it's like, you know, it's like if you wake somebody up in the middle of the night that's a brilliant physicist, you're like, solve this problem. They're like, oh, I can't. I can't even see. They're like, idiot. <laughs> you know, like there's a there's – a, it is so funny too because people who – Aren't just confident in themselves, tend to judge people like that because they'll take anything they can get. Yeah. Like I've heard guys be like, "Man, I saw what's his name? He's a pro. He wasn't even that big." I was like, "Oh yeah? How much gear was he on?" They're like, "I don't know. Like he could have been on zero gear, motherfucker. He could not train for six weeks. You have no idea." you like, "You really think you're bigger than him?" I'm like, "Yeah. Why don't you go compete at the IFB Pro, you know, Seattle?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm not even a pro." I'm like, "Uh huh. Problem number one. So why don't you stop thinking about how people look all the fucking time?" And think about like what's their best look and can I beat that? You know, you could say like, oh, Juan Morrell didn't look so great with the Arnold Classic because he was just there as a an exhibitor. And then you look at his pre-contest picks where he has like he weighs like 280 and has veins in places that I didn't even know were possible. And I'm like, huh, okay. Any thought I had of Juan Morel looking unimpressive is just washed out garbage. So it's uh, it's also because a lot of us want to train, we just kinda all always want to be training and always wanna be looking our most jacked, and there's times to pull a Pull away from that, and if someone sees, I remember one time. This is a funny story. I did. I was visiting friends in California, and I did um, a 445 pound squat, so just over 200 kilos for a set of ten. All time PR for me at the time, and I was like, "Holy fuck!" I was super, super impressed with that. And then later that week, I was deloading because that was peak, and I did uh, in the deload. I did 425 for a, a set of two, right? And this guy next to me was like, dude, that's the most I've ever seen anyone squat." And I was like, well, <laughs> I got news for you. You should have been here last week. And it, I, a part of me was just like, that was comedy, right? Because this guy thought like this was my best effort. He thought I was training. I was deloading. But then, you know, what am I supposed to think? Like, oh, man, like I should load more weight and really show him. Like, who the fuck is that guy? Who am I? Yeah. Like, it's all pointless. Like, do your best. Put your best put everything into it, get incredible results. And then when you're resting, just fucking rest. Who cares about anything else? It doesn't matter. Awesome.
0: Yeah. On a related note, is there ever a time you would choose to do a resensitization, like lower volume, lower intensity, uh, sorry, higher absolute intensity block over active recovery?
1: It's a really good question. I think for... Lifters that are in the beginner and intermediate stage, they like to train so much, active recovery is not an option for them because they'll just they'll just show up to the gym anyway. And they could use the enhanced technical coordination and uh, core strength from strength training to potentiate later hypertrophy. So for them, it's probably worth it to do resensitization versus active rest, or to put it better, more often do resensitization and less often do active rest. I'm beginning to be increasingly more. Oh, here's another one: If you have to take a long time, months away from pushing it, uh, and you're on special sports supplements, uh, like I like talking to the UK folks because it's legal over there in the UK. So if you're on special sports supplements and you, you got to like take three months away from higher doses. That's a good time to just get a little. You know, you're not going to active rest for that whole time. That's ridiculous. So there's a good time for low volume maintenance because high volume volumes are pointless because you don't have the drugs to support that kind of training anyway to make it meaningful. Um, So then is a good time, but for especially like advanced naturals and advanced non naturals who uh, don't have run issues with like having to be off of uh, higher gear for that long, I'm increasingly more apt to recommend active rest than I am resensitization phases, because active rests accomplish pretty much everything resensitization phases do, but in a shorter time frame. Uh so so that's how I, my current opinions on the matter.
0: Would it one other scenario just to throw one at you, Mike? If you'd been dieting quite a long period of time and you were then having a maintenance period to recover for another diet, but that maintenance period was quite yeah. extended would that be a 100%. time where- Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And you might not have to do it that entire time because post diet recovery, uh, I've said that you know pretty high volumes at the front end are pretty good, but then like that second mesocycle or even maybe that third, yeah, it's probably time to sort of dive it back. Yeah,
0: awesome. Well, we have taken up the entire hour, Mike, so thank you so much. As always, Again, it felt like it'd been too long. Um, These chats are always really enjoyable. And like I said, every time people love these. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time and
1: coming on. Steve, always a pleasure. Thank you to the Revive Stronger community and and the fearless leader, Steve Hall. (laughs) And uh, Pascal as well, can't leave him out. Uh, And I'll see you folks next time. Awesome. Anything you've got to share with the
0: listeners? And actually one question I was meant to ask you, Mike, the book. Are there any updates? Because I know you've already first drafted. Is that right?
1: We stopped writing the book. There was a couple people on the internet that said, hey, Dr. Mike, you're an asshole. You don't know anything. So I agreed with him and just (laughs) toasted the whole book. So no more book. Um, The book is currently in editing and it's being edited by Dr. Melissa Davis. And she's such a great thorough editor that it takes time. So the book will be out by the end of the year. Sometime in 2020, we'll be very clear about that. But I would say if you look closer to the holidays, you're probably more likely that the book will be out then. Um, So that's the book. And then in addition, uh, what things I have to say is folks, our renaissance periodization YouTube is blowing up because we're just putting content and content and content. That's one of my number one jobs now is to provide content for the channel. Um, I'm always making videos. And in whatever capacity you guys have, um, probably comment on my Instagram uh, story, uh, not stories, Instagram posts. If you guys want uh, me to cover something in a video, like, Mike, I wish you make a video about how this particular part of hypertrophy or whatever works. I would love to do that because I'm always looking for ideas. Um, we have now like, what do we count, 50 videos that we've recorded in the last six weeks that we haven't yet released. Wow. Just because you know, if you release videos too often, people are like, okay, it's infinity videos, great. Um, and we're always trying to build that cache higher and higher and higher. So a lot of these videos are individual topic videos. Uh, like I zoom into just one for example, I have a video coming out soon. That's like uh, straight does strength training help you with hypertrophy and to what extent and like, cause that's like, it doesn't really belong in any organized discussion of periodization. Um, but it's a really cool topic with tons of trade-offs and tons of interesting things, things like that. If, if your viewers and your, um, followers have anything they want me to go over i would have more than happy to make videos like that so go check out our youtube subscribe hit the like button look at that i'm a fucking youtuber it's awful um, we got merch we don't have merch um i guess renaissance Spiritization does have merch but it's not on youtube um so yeah we're just trying to get the some good content out and uh that's the deal
0: fantastic yeah i can i've been checking out some of the of form correction ones where jared's involved or charlie's involved or yep. uh, you've got various models uh, and they're fantastic so uh, i can highly thank recommend you so much steve well. yeah
1: we started making the, the technique correction videos because people i would you know i have like uh, jared and charlie and i have a somewhat compared to many body and people be like why are you doing like this or what about what's the proper way to do this and anytime we post training videos so it's like you know what we're just going to go exercise by exercise and just do an instructional of, well, here's the mistakes people make, here's how not to make them. And I've, well, I was actually very surprised by the percent of people that have positive response to them. I was expecting maybe half of people to be like, that's not how you're supposed to do it. athlete X says X, Y, Z. But surprisingly, that's just like maybe one comment on every video or every other video or some guy saying something. And then all the other followers get on that person like crazy. You know, they're just like, you fucking idiot. Because <laughs> a lot of times the, the person that says something doesn't make sense. Although I will say that, you know, that we do have really good insights on those videos people make uh, ask very good questions we're just going to come back to those questions in, in future videos so it's we're in the youtube game so if you're on there give it a shout fantastic awesome
0: guys thank you so much for listening thank you for your questions and we'll catch you soon take care So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pisca Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably, roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another—a really cool community for people within our little niche. It is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions. The community aspect—we have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can—you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library the exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy. We're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We Kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.